1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to the sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Great to see the Zimbas always. So good. I always want to eat a banana after I hear you say banana. It's the best way to say that word. So we're walking through 1 Peter, and today we come to this, I think, this really remarkable little passage. Uh, Beautiful and challenging in so many ways. I think this passage in a lot of ways gets to the very heart of 1 Peter. Certainly the end of it gets to the very heart of the gospel. So I want to spend a few minutes uh, in this passage with you, and then we're going we're gonna to celebrate communion today together, which will be, a, I think, a good response to this passage. So the immediate context is, um, you know, Peter's talking to these first century household slaves, household servants. And what I want to do today is I'm going <laughs> to apply this beyond first century household servants to things in our lives today. But let me just start with a word about first century slavery and then kind of share where I think where this becomes very applicable to all of us. So um, first century slavery in the Roman Empire uh, was a very diverse and varied experience, not something that most people would want, certainly. Uh, We kind of have to disassociate a little bit from the slavery in the New World and in America. Uh, It didn't have the distinctly racial component, like there was one particular people group singled out. It wasn't that way. Uh, in the first century of the Roman Empire, usually it was war that made people slaves or poverty that made people slaves. Some people sold themselves into slavery because that was a better option uh, than abject poverty. But you can imagine all sorts of varied and diverse experience that, that household slaves would have had uh, in that time, 2,000 years ago. Our passage uh, refers to submitting to masters uh, some of those who are good, So you can imagine some people had masters that were probably really good and considerate and had relatively decent lives. Uh, And then it also talks about, so good and considerate, but also talks about, my translation says, those who are harsh. Uh, The Greek word is skolios. And some of you have skoliosis, so you know what that word means. It means crooked, right? So it's talking about masters who are crooked, who are morally uh, corrupt, And so you can imagine a context where you have a crooked master and a massive power differential and the uh, mistreatment uh, and the abuse and the neglect that could could happen as a result of that. 
Um, all that to say, you had a very varied experience of what it might mean uh, to be a first century slave. And so what you have happen here is in the first century is the gospel starts spreading along the Mediterranean and slaves start becoming Christians. And they hear the gospel that I'm now free, that this guy's not my master. Jesus Christ is my master now. So what do I do with that? And Peter's response is, well, slaves, you continue to submit to your earthly masters, which would have been a hard thing to hear, I would imagine, for them. And I think, you know, there's a lot that we could be said about this, that we might be disappointed that the New Testament writers don't, in a more explicit way, condemn the institution. And they don't. It's just the reality is, is they, they tend to say, here's the situation you find yourself in, and you're being called to a certain posture in that. And so they don't outright condemn the institution. They do encourage people to get their freedom. I thought it's always helpful to, to balance this word of submit for first century slaves to passages like this where this is how Paul says it. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Uh, don't let that trouble you, you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. So always freedom is encouraged, but the institution is an outright condemned. But what we do see in the gospel is that the gospel provides these, this reality that is the seeds through which really ultimately slavery would be rendered unthinkable as an institution, Okay that the Judeo-Christian worldview, image bearers made in the image of God, and then the gospel, that there is now no Jew or Gentile, there's no slave or free, is this remarkably uh, equalizing force in the world, that a, that a slave is actually a freed person, and that a master is actually the slave of Christ, <laughs> that puts us on equal footing. And so the New Testament writers, they don't outright condemn the institution, but the gospel contains the seed that would ultimately destroy the institution. And there's a lot we could talk about in, in all that, so I'm happy to talk offline. But here's what I want to do this morning is um, use this, this first century, the context of a first century household slave, um, and broaden this and to see this as an example of suffering, and not just any old suffering, but unjust suffering. Four times in this passage, the word suffering is used. In verse, in verse 19, it's specifically described as unjust suffering. In verse 20, it's described as uh, suffering for doing good. So I want to consider today suffering, specifically suffering that isn't fair, suffering that isn't just, suffering that's not right, suffering that's not a consequence of, of, of our own foolish choices, okay? And so I want you to be thinking about context where you have experienced some form of what feels like unfair suffering. Uh, Christians throughout the centuries, persecution has been a form of that, okay? Slavery is a form of that. Uh, for some people, a work environment has been a place where they feel like they have been treated unfairly. They, they have to step into a context that, that doesn't always feel fair and right and that ha certain things happen in the company that just aren't right and they're doing things right and other people aren't and they're getting... They're getting unfair treatment. Um, for some people, marriage is a place where they feel like they experience unjust pain. They aren't treated fairly. They have to, they have to bear a load that doesn't feel uh, fair or right. Um, I'm thinking of situations where we're tempted to, to want to retaliate, to, to respond in kind. We're wanting to right, assert justice in a moment. 
Or I'm also thinking of circumstances where the suffering isn't fair and there's nobody to retaliate on because the suffering takes the form of cancer or chronic pain or insomnia or depression, things that, that aren't our fault, that we can suffer for a long time and there's really there's nobody to get even with. You just suffer. What I want to talk about today is a theology of suffering. And uh, you won't find that in the self-help section of a, you know, like of a bookstore. Like, you, you didn't wake up going, you know, what I, what I want today is I want a theology of suffering. And um, I've been thinking about suffering this week. M- most people don't know what to do with suffering, especially unfair suffering. And really, we, our temptation in un- unfair suffering is to do one of two things, either get out or get even, <laughs> right? That's when you're suffering unfairly, most people would say you have two options. Get out if you can. If you can't get out, get even. Th- those are your options. And I was thinking through this um, to, the, to the get out. You know, we do not preach the prosperity gospel at this church. I don't think we'd ever be accused of preaching that. Um, but I realized, like deep down inside of me, there is, there is a prosperity gospel theologian deep in my heart that kind of thinks, if I, if I live well, if I pray well, if I pursue God the way I'm supposed to, like life's going to, I think he's going to keep me from suffering. <laughs> that I, I see suffering in the world, but I feel like there's, there's probably the right book to read. There's the right way to go about my life with God that I can avoid suffering. And I realize that that is still, even though that's not my theology, there's, there's a little prosperity gospel theologian inside of me that thinks, surely good people won't have to suffer. Surely I, if I'm a good person, can avoid suffering. And we find in this passage that's just not true. And to that part of us that, that wants to get even, um, we also don't preach, you know, um, like social justice a lot here. We're not social justice warriors preaching social justice. And what I realized also was, is deep down inside of me, <laughs> there is a social justice warrior. When injustice hits home, <laughs> um, when I feel like something has happened to me that isn't fair, when someone does something to me that doesn't feel fair, when the injustice hits home, um, there is a warrior in there that wants fairness. I mean, my little, my three little girls are social justice warriors, right? And they, no, we didn't teach them that. And I think the last year and a half, I think we've experienced, I've seen that, that we have this core desire for justice. We want things to be fair and right and good. When they're not, there's something in us that wants to rise up and get even or whatever it is. Get out or get even. That That's kind of the way we think about unjust suffering. And what we learn in this passage is that the gospel offers a third way. Uh, And it's pretty radical. It's upside down. It's the Jesus way. And sometimes we can get out. Sometimes we are able to get out. And that's a beautiful thing. And sometimes there's, there's times to, right, to stand up. There's certainly, both of those are the case. But, but there's also a third way that is not always considered. And it's the Jesus way. And it is righteous suffering. It's faithful suffering. It's what Jesus did that led to our salvation. And it's not that suffering in itself is ever a good thing, but there's a way that a person can go through suffering that is righteous, that is faithful, 
uh, and that brings glory to God and that can actually be used in redemptive ways. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. And so what we get in this passage is um, Peter talking about how to deal with unjust suffering to first century slaves. And he gives, us, he gives them a couple core um, postures and a couple core perspectives. Okay, and I'm just going to move through it fairly quickly. And then, of course, he gives us the example of Jesus. But let's just look at these postures and these perspectives that he, he calls us into. Uh, first posture begins in verse 18. That word we saw last week, slaves, submit uh, to your masters. Same word we saw as citizens to the government. Uh, don't rebel. He's saying don't revolt, right? Uh, subject yourself to this place you find yourself in the world. Uh, do your work faithfully. Do it dutifully. Do it responsibly. Do it honestly, even in the midst of a tough situation. And what I really felt this week, and I felt this last week as well, is that word submit. That's a hard word in a lot of ways. But biblically, Christian submission, that word is not a word that is weak. This is what I want to hear today. It is not weak. It is not uh, cowardly. It is not for people who don't have a backbone or don't know how to stand up for themselves. There's, this kind of submission is a submission. There's a muscle to it. There's a strength to it. There's a resiliency to it. And we need to see that when we hear this word submit. Look at what he says in verse 19. Here's how he describes it. It's commendable if someone, here's the phrase, bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, bears up under the pain. The picture is a person has a heavy weight put on them. And many of you know this weight of suffering, okay? It's like a, it's like a weight that you have to carry. And what he's calling you to do is you have to bear up under. You have to, you have to hold it up with strength and carry it sometimes for a very long time. It's tiring. It's not for the weak. It's for the courageous and it's for the strong. You have to bear it up. Certainly first century slaves had to bear up under the pain of unjust suffering all the time. And sometimes spouses have to do that. Sometimes Christians have to do that. Sometimes people in tough work environments just have to bear up under the pain. You carry it for a long time and it's hard. It requires strength and courage. Look at verse, um, verse 20. Here's another word, um, the second half of the phrase. But if you suffer for doing good, and this phrase, and you endure it. Okay, that's a very New Testament word, en endure or in endurance. It means to put up with something for a long time, right? To not give up, to not give in, but to carry it. Sometimes that thing that you have to carry is cancer, right? It's... it's um, rounds of radiation and chemotherapy over time, and it requires strong endurance over time. All that to say, submission is not for the weak and for those who can't stand up for them. It is for those who can bear up under weight over time, and that's what life requires of us oftentimes. That's what many of you are walking through right now. So those are some of the postures, submit, bear up, endure. And just as important as we need to see what is the perspective, what's the reason given for why we would do this? And what, what so, uh, is so often the case in the Bible is, is the reasons aren't horizontal. They aren't because 
um, well, this person will change over time, or because the circumstance will change, or we, we don't know. It's vertical. It's because of your relationship with God. These are the reasons you hold this posture in life. So verse 18 again, slaves, here's the phrase, in reverent fear of God, submit to your master. Your, your submission, again, we talked about this last week, slaves, your submission really isn't about these human people that have authority over you. It's not about them. It's about God. You are now the Lord's slave. You're his servant. And as an act of submission to him, you go about your role honestly, faithfully, humbly, as an act of reverence, as an act of worship to him because he sees you, not because your master sees you. And he is your master. (laughs) And so it's out of fear of him. It's out of reverence and worship of him that you submit to this circumstance that is painful for you. Look at verse 19 again. It's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Why? Because they're conscious of God. That's the reason. It's vertical. The Christian goes through life with one eye on the circumstances, but with one eye on God all the time. Conscious of God is in my life. God loves me. God is watching me. God is with me wherever I go. Um, I I couldn't help. I, I bring up Brother Lawrence like once a year. But when I heard this phrase, because they're conscious of God, I thought it reminds me of Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a 17th century monk, and uh, he didn't experience the unjust suffering of slavery. Um, he did experience chronic pain. He had um, uh, what is described as a kind of sciatic gout that worsened as years went by. That sounds not fun. Um, And he entered into the monastery, and he had this chronic condition. But he was put in charge. First, he was the cook of the monastery. So he was, you know, making food and and doing all of that. And then his condition worsened. And uh, then he couldn't really cook anymore. And so all he did was he was the sandal repair guy, uh, which apparently you could do while sitting down. And so he spent his remaining years repairing the sandals of the monks and making sandals uh, with this chronic pain. Uh, and this just kind of these very menial tasks. So I think in some ways his daily life probably looked a lot like many first century household servants, just these menial tasks around the house, thankless tasks. Um, But what he did was he practiced the presence of God. He did everything he, he did with a consciousness of his father. And that brought meaning to everything he did because he did it for his God, not for the people that he was serving. I want to give you uh, one of his quotes. Uh, He's such a simple guy. Uh, If you've ever read this book, it's so simple and so profound. But this is how he describes how life should be. Think often on God, by day, by night, in your business, and even in your diversions. He is always near you and with you. Uh, And then this is the phrase that really caught me this week. Our sanctification doesn't depend upon changing our works or our circumstances, but in doing that for God's sake, which we commonly do for our own. Okay, that's how things become an act of worship. Things that we commonly do for our own sake, to make more money, to make sure my spouse, you know, acknowledges what I'm doing, whatever it might be. We do these things now for God's sake because we want to worship God. We ought to give ourselves up to God in all things and seek our satisfaction only in the fulfilling of his will, whether he lead us by suffering or by consolation. For all would be equal to a soul truly resigned. I love that. This idea of 
doing all things with his vertical orientation, right? Whether that's a first century servant saying, hey, I'm going to do this task, not for the sake of this human person, but I do it for God as an act of worship to God. Or those of you that, you know, are going to be in work context tomorrow that are challenging and maybe you're not getting the recognition that you think you should be getting or it's, it's a brutal place. And, but the motivation changes like, hey, I'm, I'm not here to get promoted. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not doing this just to make more money. This is, this is an act of worship to my God. I do this because he watches what I do and he's pleased when I do things that are faithful, even in hard contexts. Or in a marriage where um, we're in a fight with our spouse and we're kind of wanting to wait for the spouse to make the first move back towards repair and then reminded, you know what? Loving my spouse is actually not first and foremost about loving my spouse. It's not about, you know, it's, it's ultimately about worshiping God. And God, what, what kind of a husband are you asking me to be in this moment? It doesn't really matter what my wife's doing or vice versa. How can I do this out of consciousness for you? So it's an utterly different reason for doing what we do. Fear of the Lord, consciousness of God. That kind of motivation, that vertical orientation, that causes people to do things in the world that the rest of the world will look at and go, that is so nonsensical. Like that, that doesn't even make sense. I mean, again, whether it's a first century household servant who just goes about their work faithfully, even in the midst of mistreatment year after year, it doesn't make any sense. Or a 17th century monk who repairs sandals with joy and chronic pain for the rest of his life faithfully, going like what, people going, what's, what's that all about? Or again, or a man or woman just being really faithful at work, honest in their dealings, humble, hardworking, when the people around them um, are immoral, are, are shading what they're doing, are just trying to get promoted. Or whether that's a spouse who weathers a really challenging uh, husband or wife for years, faithfully, or a person going through whatever it is uh, for the sake of God. These are things that, that, that look a little, little strange to the world. It's a third way. It's not how we tend to do things. And yet it's what we're often called into as followers of Jesus. These are things that will often go unnoticed. Um, but the beautiful part of this passage is that, is that Peter reminds us, but they do not go unnoticed to God. <laughs> God sees these things. And God actually loves these things. Verse 19, for it is commendable, he says, if someone bears up under this pain. End of verse 20, this is commendable, not before people, this is commendable before God. And the word there is literally, this is a grace before God. You just might say, this is a gracious thing, or God is pleased. What he's saying is God sees all these small acts of courageous faithfulness in the midst of a challenging life. He sees it all, and it's a, it's a grace in his eyes. He's pleased by it. And I got just like a small glimpse this week as I try to put myself in God's shoes. What would it be like for him to look at his children in this world who suffer, who go through hard things that they don't deserve, that aren't a result of their sin, and to watch his kids faithfully continue to trust him continue to do good, continue to be honest and hardworking and dependable through really hard circumstances, I imagine that brings him great joy. 
And he knows very well how to reward his children for doing things like that. And so it, it's, it's a third way that the world doesn't choose, for the most part, that we wouldn't choose on our own, and yet it is, it's the gospel way. It's the Jesus way. And God sees it, and it's beautiful in his sight. And, and I would just say, I mean, after 18 years of being on staff here, um, I have seen so many examples of you all walking through really hard, long, difficult seasons with grace and faithfulness and continuing to hope in the Lord. And for me, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Peter ends by looking at the, the example of Jesus himself. And let me end uh, by turning us to Jesus, and then we'll get to actually celebrate what this passage is talking about through, through communion. But in verse 21, Peter moves to the example of Jesus. Um, let me actually jump to 20, verse 22 first. And you'll see these ex- all the same things that he's calling these first century servants to. He says, this is Jesus is the ultimate example of that. Verse 22. First, he's going to say, Jesus suffered unjustly, right? He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus did nothing wrong. He never lied. He never deceived. His suffering was not a result of his own sin. And what, I'll just let you know what, what Peter's doing here. He, this is like a long, loose quote of Isaiah 53. Um, the whole thing is like quoting from Isaiah 53, which, is, which introduces us to this mysterious figure, the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah, that, that God says he's going to raise up a servant, and his servant is going to bring justice and righteousness to the nations. And then surprise, surprise, the way he's going to do that is through his own suffering and death. He's going to suffer and die for the nations, but by his death, he's going to bring about redemption for all peoples. And of course, Jesus is that suffering servant. His, servant, his, his suffering was unjust. Uh, verse 23, he just bore up under the weight of unjust suffering. He didn't retaliate, right? When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he practiced that horizontal perspective. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I love that phrase. What was that? Oh, I feel like I'm missing. Am I I missing something? Okay. Sorry. I was getting. Oh, thank you. Vertical. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I did something wrong and Bruce was telling me and I didn't know. I thought maybe my fly was down. It was like, it was like, are we out of time? What am I doing? Okay. Vertical. Thank you. Vertically. Um, that phrase really stuck out to me this week. He entrusted himself to him who judges, judges justly. I think a lot of times when we go through unfair things, a lot of times scripture, scripture says, like when people are mistreating us, scripture says, um, well, God forgave you, right? That's the motivation. Well, we've received forgiveness, so we need to forgive them. But here the motivation is actually different, and it's helpful. It's actually this. We have a God who judges justly. And sometimes when you're going through real injustice, you can remember that. There is a God who knows how to bring about justice in the end. Like he sees everything. And in the end, he is a God of justice who knows how to reward and how to bring consequence in all ways that are right and good. And that can actually free me from having to bring justice myself. I don't have to because I can trust God's going to do that one day. So when I'm really being mistreated, that's, a, that's actually a, a very Christian motivation. God is forgiving, but God is a God of justice. So I don't have to bring justice. But Jesus knew that God would bring justice in his own time. And then it goes into this beautiful, let me just read this. This is the gospel, verse 24. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This beautiful picture that at the heart of the Christian faith is suffering. The the reason we are no longer in our sins, the reason we are no longer condemned is because of suffering. The reason there is redemption in this world is because of the suffering of the Son of God for our sake. That he suffered in our place, he died in our place so that we might experience forgiveness. So redemptive suffering lies at the very heart of our faith. And that has to change our view of suffering a little bit, right? And we we don't suffer redemptively like Jesus. My suffering will never bring about the salvation of the world. But I can never see suffering quite the same when I've seen the suffering at the cross. This is suffering is our story. Suffering is the gospel. What God can do and bring about through suffering through the suffering of his son. And I'll leave you with with these images. So back in verse 21, Peter says this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, and here's the phrase, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. That word example, or yours might say leaving you a pattern, that's the only place it shows up in scripture. And that Greek word Whenever it's used in other places, it's used of like when you're teaching children how to write, in their case, maybe Hebrew, you know, like it's used of the Hebrew letters that are already written on a piece of paper that kids would trace in order to learn their letters. And I've, I'm very familiar with this because we've got some young kids where you start learning your letters by you, you trace letters that are actually there. And that's the image that Peter uses. Jesus has left us, he's left us the pattern, the way that he walked faithfully through suffering. We trace out now as his followers the pattern of righteous, faithful suffering. And then, of course, the other image is um, that you should walk in his footsteps, kind of mixing metaphors here. Jesus has walked this road of faithful suffering, and we are to walk in his footsteps. We, We learn the steps of Jesus by watching him at work. Faithful, courageous, righteous, trusting, suffering. Hebrews 12 says it this way. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So I just want to invite you to consider your own life. You know, some of us, life is great right now. Some of us, though, it's, it's hard. But I think what, what we're encouraged to do is, is consider that, um, that fearful part of us that just always wants to escape suffering at all costs. <laughs> and to look at the example of Jesus say, sometimes we need to enter into it faithfully. We need to not run from it. Sometimes we can get out. And if we can, that's great. But sometimes we're being called to actually to, to walk into it courageously, faithfully. And then there's that other part of us, not the fearful part, but maybe the ego part, that when we're being treated unfairly, just wants to retaliate, just wants to get even, wants justice at all costs. That part of us that's easily offended, that wants to demand our rights, that wants to retaliate. And the example of Jesus reminds us, you know, sometimes we do get to stand up for ourselves. Sometimes that's the right thing. But also there's another way. 
There's a way of entrusting ourselves to the Lord's justice and walking faithfully, even when we're being mistreated. So the gospel offers us this radically upside-down way of thinking about life the Jesus way. And we're going to celebrate uh, the Jesus way in a second that brings about our redemption. So let me pray for us, and then we'll move into communion. Well, Lord, today we get to celebrate the good news, which is that we are forgiven. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We uh, have eternal life, and we celebrate that. But all of that comes about through the suffering of your son, the righteous, redemptive suffering on our behalf. And so I pray, especially for those of us right now that are walking through hard times, that just life is hard, and we would so love to be able to escape what's hard. Or we're being mistreated, and, and everything in us wants to get even. Lord, show us, give us wisdom, give us encouragement, show us how we can walk through this in ways that uh, honor you uh, and that bear witness to the gospel. But I, I pray especially for encouragement. I pray for your spirit to strengthen, uh, to comfort, and for, for friends and family as well to come alongside those that are really going through hard times, uh, that they might be supported, they might be able to walk, they might be able to continue to carry this heavy weight and not carry it alone, but know that you carry it with them, Lord. And even now as we move to, to communion, I pray that this would be a sweet time where you encourage us, you remind us of your love for us, and you give us whatever strength we need to then go back into the lives that we have, um, resolute and strong and ready. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.